This evening, I want to talk to you about a subject that I call, We Persuade Men. And uh, you know, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest persuaders of the uh, first century. And I'm going to take my reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read there from verse 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 9. The Apostle said, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. I want to talk to you a little while tonight about the idea of we persuade men. I've read all kinds of things about Paul, and I'm not real sure how anybody knows anything other than what we read in the scriptures. But it is obvious, even from the scriptures, that Paul was quite a preacher. Uh, even the Apostle Peter said of Paul that there were some things that he wrote of that were hard to be understood. That certainly is the case. Not that he wrote in a way that was hard to understand, but some of the material he considered was hard to be understood. In our text this evening, the Apostle Paul recognized uh, this as part of his great work, that is, the business and the work of persuading others to obey the gospel and live the Christian life. This really ought to be true of every Christian. We all need to be this way. Because salvation, soul saving, and Christianity are serious things. The preacher has to recognize its importance as well. We need to understand and all of us need to realize that the, pulp, that the preacher is never in the pulpit, not supposed to be anyway. He's never in the pulpit uh, to display his scholarship. He's not there to entertain, although I will say that great preaching is entertaining to me and I love to hear it. But the purpose of preaching is not for the purpose of entertaining. The purpose of preaching is to persuade others to obey the gospel. We're not here to express great theological uh, opinions or speculations. Our work is to persuade people so that they might be saved by obeying the gospel of Christ. Our work is to present the gospel, to persuade people, to motivate them, to excite them, to induce them, and every other adjective that you might imagine, so that they might uh, follow Jesus Christ. Now, we need to recognize that man is a persuasive creature. If that wasn't the case, why bother to preach? I mean by that, that it is possible to change a person's mind by presenting the truth. If a person is open-minded enough to consider what the truth is, then his or her convictions may very well be able to be changed. Now, this, this kind of, of thing can be uh, hindered by prejudice. It often is. I've had people tell me, I don't care what the Bible says. I believe this, that, or the other. Well, you know, that really is a very dangerous uh, situation. And until you can get through that, until people do care what the Bible says, then you're going to have a hard time persuading them. But their, uh, their uh, persuasion can be hindered by their own prejudice, by their disinterest, or even a distraction sometimes in the service. You know, we need to remember that every time there is some kind of noise, 
Some, and, and please don't misunderstand me. Every time there is a great deal of movement, we, we look over here, we look over there, or our attention is diverted for a moment. Just for that little bit, there's a few words that the preacher says or the teacher says, and we may not get it. And so the thought that he was presenting may become incomplete in our understanding and we may miss some things that are important. Well, I want to notice a few things tonight about the persuasing, persuading of men. The context reveals the answer to the question, why did Paul persuade men? Notice the Bible says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. So Paul knew uh, he had a knowledge and in Romans, the 11th chapter and verse 22 is found one of my favorite passages uh, in Romans. And the 11th chapter is one of my favorite chapters. There Paul said, behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about the context of this passage. You know, back when the gospel was first uh, presented to people in the second chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, so many thousand obeyed the gospel then, and just a few chapters on, another 5,000. At first, it was Jews that came into the church. But later in Acts 10, you read where the apostle Peter uh, preached and baptized Cornelius and his family, who were Gentiles. And from the time that the Gentiles began to come into the church, the Jews, because of their racial prejudice, began to fall away from the church. They began to pull back. They didn't want to believe that the Gentiles could be saved in the same way that they could be saved. I, I tell you, we don't even understand what racial prejudice is all about. If you look at the kind of prejudice that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, no wonder the Bible speaks of the middle wall of partition. It was something that just divided them and neither side wanted anything to do with the other. And for many, many years, the Gentiles looked almost as from without through a, through a, a window and they, they admired and they uh, envied, I suppose, uh, the blessings that God gave to the, to the Israelites he didn't give the Gentiles those blessings, but they needed it and they wanted it. And for so many years, they just were not a party to that. And then all of a sudden, the gospel came. The, the Gentiles obeyed the gospel and began to come in in great numbers. And from that time, the Jews began to just pull back. Now, there were two reasons for their pulling back. Number one, by this time, the Roman Empire was directing great persecution toward the church. And people were being killed in the most, just the most unimaginable ways, horrific ways. They were boiled in oil and thrown from cliffs and fed to animals. You name it, the, the Romans killed Christians, our brethren, in that way. And so it was, it was uh, tempting for the, gen, for the Jews to leave, uh, to leave the church and go back under the old law. Because the Romans didn't seem to mind if you worshipped on Saturday and if you killed some animals. Uh, that didn't seem to be considered a threat by them uh, to, their, to their empire. But this new Christian religion was so, uh, it was so explosive. It was growing so fast that they were scared by that. That was one of the reasons uh, that the Jews pulled back. And the second reason was, as I said, the racial prejudice that they had toward the Jews. Or rather, to, that the Jews had toward the Gentiles. Now then... By the time Paul wrote the 11th chapter of Romans, 
the Gentiles were beginning to boast. If you'll study that chapter carefully, you'll see what I'm saying is true. They were boasting. In fact, Paul actually mentions that. And uh, they were saying, you know, it looks like that maybe the Jews have been cast away by God so that we, the Gentiles, could come in. And Paul said, you need to understand that God has not cast away his people, which he formerly knew. That is, he knew them in an earlier time. He didn't cast his people away. And Paul shows to the, uh, uh, to the Gentiles in this uh, chapter that we're talking about, Romans 11, he shows to them uh, that the reason the Jews fell away was because of unbelief, a lack of understanding, a lack of faith. And he said, the reason you are, are where you are is because you do believe and you are trying to follow the word of God. Now, as Paul considered these two, you know, uh, obviously separate uh, positions and situations, he was led to just make this exclamatory statement. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. If you ever really consider what Paul was saying, it'll make you just, well, just make your jaw fall open. Because his, his goodness was so incredible. It's just unbelievable how good God can be and how good he is and has been for all of these years. And yet on the other hand, the very same God who is so good and has always blessed so many people can be so incredibly serious and, uh, and, and severe that it is just almost unbelievable. He would lead uh, people to destroy whole nations. He sent uh, Saul down to destroy the Amalekites. And by the way, I was talking to Bill Smith about this the other night, and this made me think of it. You know, the, the reason that Saul was sent to destroy the Amalekites was because years earlier, as Israel was going through the wilderness, Amalek, who was nothing less than just a, a thug and a bandit in the desert, he attacked the hinder portion of the, of the column of Israelites. This would have been where the old folks were, where the children were and the women were. And that's where he attacked. I don't know what he did, whether he robbed or killed or whatever it was. But God at that time said, I'm going to wipe that nation, the Amalekites. I'm going to wipe them off of the face of the earth. You know how long it was. Now, when I when learned this, and I didn't figure it out on my own, but scholars say that from the time that incident happened and that God vowed his vengeance, that from the time that happened until the time Saul was sent to destroy him was something like 400 years. You think about that. Why did God wait so long? Well, the only answer I can give you is that time means absolutely nothing to God. He's not going anywhere. One day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. What's 400 years? Well, it's not even a whole day the way God looks at things. And so uh, he sent Saul. Samuel was, was uh, told to send Saul to destroy them. But anyway, that's the kind of severity that God was capable of having. Well, this is the reason that Paul felt such a, a desperate attitude about persuading men. He understood the terror of the Lord. He understood how severe the Lord could be. And because of that, he said, we persuade men. Now, the terror of the Lord, I think, is probably, at least I'm sure it includes, the judgment. Now, you know, in our day and age, we're not worried about the terror of the Lord uh, striking us dead at the moment. 
that happened in the early days of the church. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They just fell dead and that was during the time of the church because they lied to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Well, we know the terror of the Lord in the sense that we're wondering and we're afraid and we're concerned about the judgment day that's coming someday. And the idea of, so to speak, a line being drawn and the saved on one side and the lost on the other. And then the absolute terror of wondering what it will be like to be on the wrong side of that line. To be on the left side with the goats instead of over on the right with the sheep. Well, we know the terror of the Lord in that sense. And I have an idea that this is at least part of what Paul is talking about. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul said, And to you who are troubled, now I want you to listen to this, because this passage is almost always used in our day and age as a, as a way to scare people. But you know, when Paul wrote this, when Paul spoke this, it wasn't his idea to scare people. Listen carefully to what he said. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from uh, the glory of his power. <coughs> now, Paul says the day is coming when all of this is going to come to an end and the Lord is coming in flaming fire. And when that happens, Paul says, rest with us. You don't have to worry about that day. If you'll be a Christian, if you live for the Lord, you can enjoy the goodness of the Lord. And you don't have to worry about the severity of God. Rest with us, Paul said. Well, this is why that Paul persuaded men. And this is also why we need to persuade men. And when Paul spoke of the terror of the Lord, he had in mind, I'm sure, more than the obvious because I think he also spoke of things unseen. You know, we don't think of that too often. And you know, the older I get, the more certain I am, number one, that we not only don't give the Lord the amount of credit that we should, we also don't fear the devil like we should. He's far more active and he's far more dangerous than most of us ever think about. And why in the world some church members want to buddy up and be good neighbors with the devil is more than I understand. I just don't understand that. He hasn't got a thing in the world to offer us but damnation. And if we don't want to go there, if we don't want to be a part of that terror of the Lord, then we need to be the kind of people that are Christians. And then Paul said, we can rest with the rest of them. I think Paul spoke of things unseen. And there's a passage that I want to notice briefly with you. Wish I could spend quite a bit of time on this passage. But, but consider with me 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. He said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, you know, this is the time of persecution. And the affliction that the brethren were, were experiencing was, well, it was horrific. Let me tell you something, probably Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, I should say, I want to deal, if I might, with the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's my favorite chapter in all of the, of the two Corinthian letters. 
Because in that chapter, you see a personal side of Paul that you really don't see anywhere else. But I don't want to give away what I'm going to say. But listen to what he says. Our light affliction is but for a moment. As bad as it was. With women having their children taking out, taken out of their hands and fed to the lions or the wild dogs before their very eyes and within their sound. You imagine how horrific that was. And all they had to do to escape it was say, I renounce Christ. And they'd give them their children back and they could go home and everything would be all right. But did you know that there were many, many, many who died as a martyr rather than renounce the Lord Jesus Christ? It is said that the uh, ancient man by the name of Polycarp, he came later than the New Testament, but it is said that when he was brought uh, to his uh, tormentors who were going to burn him, I think it was, at the stake, they offered him the opportunity to renounce the Lord. And it is said that he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has never failed me. I shall not fail him now. Now, whatever you want to say about martyrs, one thing you have to understand is that a martyr, obviously, whether he's right or wrong, he or she believes in the cause that they're ready to die for. They wouldn't be a martyr otherwise. So Paul says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let me stop there for just a second. Why did Paul call it a light affliction? If he had said our severe affliction, I could have bought that real easy. But he said our light affliction. Well, I think here's the way to understand it. Let me give you a little personal example. When I was a boy, I was raised by a father who was 50 years old when I was born. And so he was, he was probably too old to really raise a son. Uh, and consequently, I, I probably went through some things that I might not have otherwise had to go through. But there was one thing about my father. If I asked and he said no, I was not even to ask why. In fact, it often resulted in physical punishment if I did. And I remember one in the summertime living in the Ozarks where I did. I went swimming almost every day. That's the way we would take a bath. In fact, the Bart Shaw's father and I often took baths that same way when he lived with us for uh, several months and traveled with my dad to, to learn to preach. And one day I asked dad if I could go swimming and I don't know why he said no, but he did. And I thought, man, it's hot. I know what I'm going to get if I disobey. I considered everything. And I remember thinking, you know, I believe it's worth it. And I went swimming. Well, it was worth it. And I still don't regret it. I wish I hadn't had to disobey my father. And I did pay a price, trust me. But it was worth it. And I think this is the way Paul felt about some of the afflictions he was going through. Paul had been stoned. He had been imprisoned. He had been left for dead at one point. And brother, when the Jews stoned you and left you for dead, they believed you were dead. And some scholars believe he actually was. And some believe that's when Paul experienced that, so, so to speak, out-of-body experience that you read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But that's neither here nor there for the point of my lesson right now. 
He said it's just for a little while. And when Paul had that out of body, as we call it, experience, he said he was able to see things and hear things on the other side that he could not utter. Interesting, you know, that today people have these out of body experiences and they won't tell you all about it. Paul had one and the Lord wouldn't let him tell. That's interesting to me. I'm suspicious of those who do all the talking. But Paul said, I would like to tell you, but I will not be a fool. In other words, you'd think I was a fool if I told you everything. So I'll forbear. That is, I'll just wait. But I think whatever it was that Paul saw, whatever it was he heard, was so wonderful that he couldn't wait to go himself. He couldn't wait to get back there. He realized what a wonderful experience it was going to be. Now, when he considered how great it was going to be over there, and with how bad his afflictions were here, he considered them light. I don't think Paul was giving us a hyperbole or some kind of gross exaggeration. I don't think he was trying to draw sympathy to himself. I think he told it just exactly like it was. He considered it light. What did he care if somebody threw rocks at him? He was going to heaven. What did it matter to him if he had been in prison? He was going to have a mansion someday. See what I mean? He thought it was worth it. Just like I thought it was worth it to go swimming. He was ready and willing and glad to pay the price to receive what he had already seen and heard over there. Well, let me get back to this passage. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you realize? I wonder if you've ever thought. Some of you I know have gone through some horrific things. You've had some terrible things happen to you. I know some of you have. Have you ever considered that had you not gone through those things, whatever it may have been, you would not be the person you are today? You are better, you are stronger than you ever would have been. I know that's true because Paul said so. He tells us that by inspiration. These light afflictions, as he called them, these things that we go through, whatever they may be, that upset us and break our hearts and lay us low, these things make us better than we would have ever been before. Years ago, I held a meeting up in the state of Oklahoma. I stayed in the home of uh, Jim and Betty Cannon. And during that week, Betty Cannon had a uh, tape that she wanted to play me. And she told me enough about it that I didn't think I wanted to listen to it. It was, a, I thought, a, just a ridiculous and absurd story. And I just tried everything in the world I could think of to get out of it. I went to the museums and I, I visited here and I visited there. And, and, you know, but finally I just ran out of things to do and I had to listen to the tape. And I was so glad when I did that I had. Now, you're going to think it's absurd, but there's a beautiful moral to this, and it is so true. Listen, I'll tell it as quickly as I can. It is said that a couple went to London, England. They were standing on the outside of an antique store admiring a beautiful antique teacup sitting on a shelf. They were just admiring its beauty. And while they were admiring it, this teacup began to speak to them. Yeah, I know. That's the way I felt, too. And he's, the, the teacup said, you know, there was a time that I didn't look like this. 
There was a time when I was just a shapeless mass of clay. And a potter came along and put me on a wheel and spun me around and around and I bitterly complained. And uh, finally he took me off and he had shaped me into a shape kind of like what you see now. He took me off of that wheel and put me in an oven that was so hot I thought I couldn't stand it a second. And he said, I complained and said, listen, I can't stand this. Are you finished? And the man would say, not yet. And said, finally, he took me out of that oven and painted me all over with this evil smelling substance and then put me back in the oven again. And he said, you know, when he took me out the next time, I had become what you see today. Immediately, I saw the story. I saw the moral of the story. And this passage came to mind. Our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. They prepare us to be better. You know, <clears throat> about 30 years ago or so, I went through a situation in my own life that was very difficult for me. And when I finally came out of it, when I finally got through the situation, and by the way, I've noticed, and I don't know about you, but I've noticed that the greatest heartache I have ever had to endure was brought on by not something I did, but something somebody else did. And that's the thing you can't control. But anyway, when it was finally over, without even realizing it, I had changed. And another preacher came to me one day and said, I don't know what happened to you, but you're a lot better preacher than you used to be. Well, I, I think I knew what happened. Uh, it makes you better. You're stronger. You're more sympathetic. You're more interested in the, in the problems that other people have than you ever would have been before. This is what Paul's talking about. And this is probably why that uh, the Bible tells us that we need to rejoice in the sufferings of Christ because that's going to make us better. That's going to improve us. And we never would be that well if we hadn't gone through that. So he said, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, why did Paul persuade men? He persuaded men because of the love of Christ. The Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, that is, all dead spiritually. And that he died for all, that they which live spiritually should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, Paul realized the terror of the Lord, but he also realized these unseen things. That somebody had died for him. And that he now had an opportunity to live in heaven forevermore because Jesus died and rose again. Well, that's who we are. We have the same impetus that Paul did there. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. 
And again in Hebrews 2 and verse 9, Paul said, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. I don't have the time to go into all of this, but I'll tell you this. Jesus did not taste physical death. He died as dead as any man ever died. But just before he died, if you'll remember, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In order to become our Savior, and in order for us to have to be able to escape that spiritual death, he tasted it for us. Now, we'll have to die, spirit, uh, die physically unless he comes again, according to Hebrews 9 and verse 27. But we don't have to die spiritually. We can escape that because Jesus tasted death for every man. I could go on and on. Paul uh, uh, persuaded men because of a sense of indebtedness. And he said he was a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. He said, uh, then again, he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Listen. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We don't belong to ourselves. We owe God everything. We owe the Lord everything. And so that's one of the reasons that we need to be uh, busy uh, persuading men. How did Paul persuade men? He persuaded men in Paul's day and in Paul's way. He personally persuaded them by demonstrations of power. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 3 and 4. Now, that, I don't have that power, and you don't either. I, I can't give you an inspired sermon except from what I've read from the Word of God. That's inspired, but I don't have a, an insp inspiration that comes direct to me uh, from the Lord like Paul did. But listen, Paul intends for us to persuade men by our godly lives and our influence. In Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, he said, Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me tell you something, folks. Church members can never shine if they are constantly fussing and bickering with each other. If they're complaining all the time, you're not going to persuade anybody to be like you. Who would want to be like that? And so this is one of the reasons why we need to promote love and good works. We need to provoke love among each other rather than the other way. And then, of course, we're also to persuade by our preaching. In Romans 1, verses 14 through 16, Paul said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Finally, again, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 21, he said, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. There's so many other things I wanted to say, but I've got to get to a final point. You know, it is, a, it is a shame that people are not obedient to the gospel sometimes because the gospel is not packaged like they want it. 
They want to go to heaven. They'll tell you they do. And I suppose they really do. But they want to tell the Lord how to take them to heaven. They're not willing to follow the recipe of God. They're not willing to read the word of God and follow what it says. Now, that's, that's really too bad. And you know, years ago, someone sent me a story that I thought illustrated that point so well. And I'm going to tell it to you as best I can. It is said that a young man was uh, getting ready to graduate from college. He had been an excellent student, straight A's. He knew that his father was immensely proud of him. And so a little while before it was time to graduate, he went to his father and explained to his father that really the only thing he wanted from his father as a graduation present, his father was pretty well off, was this really nice, flashy sports car that was in the dealer showroom downtown. He told him where the dealer was, what kind of car it was, gave him all the information. And the father just smiled and he went on his way. And as the graduation time neared, he looked and looked and looked for signs that his father had granted his wishes and he didn't see any. Finally, graduation day came and the father called the boy into his study. And he said, he told him, you know, what a fine son he was, how proud he was of him, how glad that he had him and how much he had enjoyed having him in, in the home with he and his mother. And finally, at the conclusion of that little speech, he handed him this little box that was beautifully gift wrapped. And the son was kind of disappointed. He, he knew, obviously, that wasn't going to be the sports car. And so he unwrapped it and inside this box was an absolutely beautiful leather-bound Bible with his name inscribed in gold. And the young man was absolutely livid. He threw the Bible down on his father's desk and he said, with all of your money, you give me a Bible? And he stormed out of the house and for many years never saw his father again. They were estranged for a long, long time. The young man had a great education and became very successful in business. And after some years, he began to feel guilty that he hadn't seen his father anymore. He decided he probably should go back and make amends. As he was making arrangements, though, he received a, a telegram. And the telegram stated that his father had passed away. And since he was the only heir, the only son, the only child... He should return home immediately and settle his father's estate. He went home. He went into the old house and with tears streaming down his eyes, he went into his father's study and to his amazement, there on his desk was still the Bible that he had thrown there so many years earlier. Idly, he picked up the Bible and was leafing through the pages. As he leafed through the pages, a car key fell out of the back of it. A little note was attached to it. And here's what the note said. It said, it had the date of his graduation and the words, paid in full, love dad. You know, when you think about that, here was the problem. The young man had the car. He just didn't know it. His dad had bought the car. He just didn't know it. 
but it wasn't packaged like he thought it ought to be. He wanted the car to be pulled up in the driveway and a great big to-do made over it. But instead, he receives this little note in a Bible. And his father's best wishes to live by the Bible and follow the scriptures so that he might be a good Christian man. And I'm convinced that many times the world sees uh, what they consider great things in the, word, in the Bible. And they want to go to heaven. But they're not interested to be baptized. They're not willing to do all of that. They want to just have some great big to-do made over them like Naaman did, you know, when he said, I thought surely that the man of God would come out before me and stand and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Well, it doesn't work that way. The gospel is packaged the way the Lord wanted it packaged. And no matter how long you look at it, it's still going to tell you that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins.